we'll get through the, we'll get through this together, and uh, hopefully um, God will speak through the text. Romans chapter eight. We're going to be reading twenty six through thirty. I'm going to read this, and then I will pray. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us, groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Dear Lord, we are become this morning more humbled. Lord, as we center our hearts and minds around your word. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us in holiness. Lord, that you would convict us, Lord, where we are lacking. And Lord, that you would, through your spirit, Lord, grow us to be people, Lord, who reflect the image of Christ. That you give us the proper perspective that your word provides, that everything that happens in our lives, you work out to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. That you use things, Lord, to draw us closer to yourself, to conform us into the image of Christ. I pray that you would give us that perspective through your word. Lord, I pray for those this morning who, again, are sick and struggling. We pray for Elena Melvin, who is in the hospital, Lord, and hopefully will be um, getting out of the hospital today, Lord. We pray for the Melvins. We pray for Elena. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage her. We pray that the church here would encourage her and love her. Lord, we pray for uh, Natasha, who's not feeling well, and for others who are not feeling well this morning, Lord. Pray that you would uh, give them strength, that they would feel better, uh, so that they can go about their week. Lord, we uh, pray for um, Servant Fellowship Church in Boonville, Lord. I know they have a Easter egg hunt coming up soon. Lord, I pray, Lord, that many people from the community in Boonville will go, and I pray, Lord, they will get connected to the church. We pray also for the Easter egg hunt that will be happening here on, on Saturday, April the 13th, Lord. We pray that many people from the community would come and get connected not only to the church, Lord, but they would get connected, Lord, to followers of Christ. And Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged to come and to listen and to hear the teachings of your word. Lord, I pray that you would save people and that, that, that they would be discipled. Lord, they would fall in love with the church and fall in love with the people of the church. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray that your word, that you would encourage us and convict us. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, the title is Future Glory, and I'm going to do something a bit odd. I'm going to kind of start with verse 30 and work my way backwards, because um, really this passage really kind of, it, it kind of ends um, with really what all this is all about. The results of, of what we've been talking about for several weeks is all kind of coming down the hill to verse 30. And so I kind of want to start with 30 and then work back. But before I do that, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about... Um, uh, the term inducement uh, or incentives, uh, the term, you know, that prizes or rewards that spur us to action. 
Um, when I was a kid, I ran track, and I know the Melvin, I mean the Hudson's girls are running track, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, and loved track, and was around track uh, most of my childhood. But what I would do basically is I would practice all week, and then Saturdays were just completely from 8 in the morning to like 3 o'clock in the afternoon was at the track meet, and, and I ran my three races. And uh, I ran the uh, 800 meter, the mile, and the two miles. So I was a long distance runner. And that was my, in the spring, that was my Saturday. I mean, I was, I, when I was a kid, I would spend my entire Saturdays at the track. And um, I loved to win. Um, you know, I don't know if necessarily I enjoyed the running part, because it's really not a lot of fun. Like, baseball's fun, basketball's fun, football's fun. There's not a lot of fun that comes out of running. I mean, there's, you just run really fast, it hurts. It's painful. Uh, there's really no other. It's not like something you enjoy playing with your teammates. It's it's just a painful sport. It's hard to find any kind of funness to running track. But the one thing I enjoyed doing was winning. Man, I would when I was a kid, I would win and I won a lot. And I would kill people. And basically, the first when the gun went off, when the gun went off, I would really run as fast as I possibly could until the end. And a lot of times I would win. So getting across that 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 going through the tape, uh, going through the, 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 the tape at the end, was, and winning and being all the people that I was running against was really the inducement for wanting to, to go through all that pain and, and suffering as you, as you ran. And, and so I enjoyed the glory of winning and enjoyed getting those ribbons and those medals that you would get when you won a, won a, won a race. And, and so it was really cool to have those blue ribbons. And I would have, I had, when I was a kid, I had a whole bag full of blue ribbons and medals and trophies from winning races, and that was the whole fun, was winning and, and getting that glory. I think that all the incentive for running for me was about winning and getting that glory. And to present some context uh, for the passage today is, I want to go over to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 through 26, and um, talk a little bit about uh, Moses. If you don't know about the story of Moses, you know Moses, uh, he grew up, uh, he was a Hebrew, but he grew up in the court of Pharaoh. He, he grew up in the palace of the Egyptian king. And it says here in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 11, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the children. The child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Basically, the king was going to kill all the firstborn Hebrews. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, and to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the approach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So basically, Moses gave up all the riches and all the treasures and all the glory of living in the court of Pharaoh to live amongst his people who were slaves. He saw that the wealth of being a, a child of God or being a Hebrew was far greater than being a son or child of Pharaoh. So what is faith? Faith is it, it pictures a future with a God who is so powerful and so loving and so wise and so satisfying that this future picturing far the experience uh, assurance now. So faith is, is believing and trusting in a future that is to come. Moses trusted in a future that was to come. That's why he left the, the, the palace of Pharaoh. Moses uh, trusted and, and, and believed 
and the promises of God over the promises of sin. His faith was a realization of the future that was to come, that this future was that God, people, would be uh, taken out of their slavery and then redeemed uh, from their slavery uh, of 400 years in Egypt. This living by faith in a future of grace, that we live by faith, we trust in a future that has yet to come, but we hope that it will come, and we believe that it's been since God's promised it that it will come. Future grace is the sum of eternal life which Christ purchased, leading to holiness. So all of what's going on is that this end result of grace in Christ is holiness. That everything that we've been reading in Romans 8 is where we have no condemnation in Christ, that Christ has been offered for our sins, that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us because of Christ, that we've been dwelt with the Holy Spirit, that no longer do we live by the flesh, but live by the Spirit, that the same Spirit that was Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that lives within us. All of these things is leading to something, and it's leading to holiness. That we would be a people that, were, that, would, that would reflect the image of Christ. And everything is leading to our conformity to the image of Christ. Our salvation in Christ is completed when we are renewed in every way to reflect the image of Christ fully. Right now, you do not reflect Christ fully, but you will reflect him in the future. We've been created to reflect the image of God, saved by Christ to reflect his image. That great prospect is our hope. Our hope is that we will be like Christ. Our hope is that we will be conformed completely to the image of Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18. That that future glory is so, it's not even worth comparing to our sufferings Today, because that glory to be revealed in us is so amazing and so great, because we will reflect Christ. The redemption of our bodies, the glory of the children of God, salvation leads to glory. Salvation is not just that your sins are forgiven, not just that you will not go to hell. Salvation leads to glory. So the main idea is glorification is Full, full conformity to the image of Christ, accomplished by God's sovereign will, providence in all things, and interceding prayers through the Holy Spirit in our groaning. So point number one is to know the end from the beginning. To know the end from the beginning. So again, I'm going to kind of start at the, the end here in verse 30 and then kind of work my way back. So if you get lost, we're starting in verse 30. What does Paul say here in verse 30? He says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you can go to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That word foreknew is a tough word there. And here, uh, some would like to define this as foreknowledge, that God knew already who was going to be the people that were going to believe in Christ. And that's what it's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. Foreknowledge is foreknew. He knew us. He knew you before he even created you. He loved you before he even created you. This is a relational term. 
It's almost like, um, I was thinking about this, it's almost like when you have a child and it's, it's not yet come, like you know, it's, it's still in the, the mom's belly, but you almost, you almost, you already have a knowledge of him, you already have a knowledge of her, but yet she, she or he has not come into the world yet. God loves us and knew us before we were even created. This is a relational, relational purposes of God. God's love is the ground of your salvation, not your works, not in your, um, your ability to be able to follow or be obedient to God's law. Your salvation is grounded in his love. For knowledge is, is an idea of being appointed as subjects of uh, future privilege, privilege. So you have been appointed as a child of God before the creation of the earth. That God loved you and knew you and saved you before the foundations of the earth. Uh, this is a few passages just to kind of help us here. Exodus 33, verse 17. Kind of helps us a little bit in understanding this concept of foreknowledge or knowledge from a relational standpoint. Verse 17 of Exodus 13. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Jeremiah 1, chapter 5, another passage that helps us here. Jeremiah 1, 5. I think this passage is probably better helping us understand this concept of foreknowledge. Jeremiah 1.5 Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. That's the concept that, that is being presented here in Romans chapter 8. That God knew you before you were even created. Before you were even formed in the womb, God knew you and then saved you. Because he knows you and loves you. So the grounding of your salvation in Christ is not your works. It's not that God just knew that you would put your faith in Christ, but he loved you. That's the grounds of salvation itself. And it even says that he predestined you. He, pre he predetermined what you would be. Your final destiny. This is about what God, why he saved you. He saved you not just so you would not go to hell. He saved you because he had, he, his destiny for you was to be conformed in the image of Christ. He saved you and determined that that would be your final destination. That that would be who you would end up becoming. And what you would be. That all of this is about conformity to the image of Christ. That we were saved to be like Christ. Again, you were not just saved for your sins to be forgiven. Not simply to get out of hell. Not simply to join a subculture. The Christian subculture, right? To, to be a Christian is to is to eat Chick Fil A all the time, wear corny T-shirts, listen to K Love, and put really corny inspirational quotes on Facebook or Instagram with beautiful like landscape pictures and a Bible and coffee. Like that's not what you were saved, right? I mean, you were saved for a purpose, and that was to be like Christ. Like that that concept doesn't get talked about a lot in the church because I think. All we want to focus on is forgiveness of sins and hell and eternal life. But you were saved to be something different. And that difference is to reflect Christ. That's, you were made to be a new, to be a new creation in Christ. To reflect Galatians chapter 5. We all know the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with passions and desires. This is why you were saved, to reflect those fruits of the Spirit. I was asking a student recently, how would you know a Christian? You know, how would you know if someone was a Christian? And some of the terms he used were kind of like, well, they didn't drink. You know, someone who kind of, like, kind of had the persona of a Christian. And I would basically push him to understand that the things that a Christian does is not just that we don't drink alcohol or we don't do this, this, this. A Christian is one who reflects these values, who reflects love, joy, peace, patience. Like these things, if someone reflects these things, that's one who has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who has been saved by Christ. To reflect those things. That, and Paul kind of continues here in Romans 8 that he might be the first fruit of many brothers and sisters. That Christ Jesus was the first fruit of many brothers and sisters that reflect the same nature that Christ reflects. The future kingdom has invaded the current age. That if you're a follower of Christ, God is making you new. He's renewing you. He is through his Holy Spirit, he's conforming you into the image of Christ. And so therefore, Christians are those who carry and reflect Christ's image in the world. In the present age, that the future age, when we will be fully like Christ, where we are like Christ even today because of our sanctification and our, our growth uh, through the Spirit. Genesis 12, 12, 3 says, And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. The many shall be made anew. The many shall be glorified in Christ. The blessings that God sent to Abraham will be fulfilled through Christ, that we will share a similar nature. We will share a similar inheritance. We will share a similar blessing because of our identity in Christ. And that great glory is actually to reflect Christ and to reflect his image. Paul says here in the last, in verse 30, God gets this golden chain. He says, he said, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Them who, those who he justified, he glorified. There's a term in economics called the invisible hand. And it's a term to talk about the market. And so basically the market is an invisible hand that basically uh, changes demand, changes supply, and will eventually lead to public interest. That society will actually, uh, eventually over time, uh, through the market, uh, become a, a fair and, and, and proper society. And that there's this invisible hand that pushes and organize, organizes this whole thing. So that helps with this a little bit, that God's invisible hand, that God predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified, that he is pushing us from the beginning, from before, the, before creation itself, he was pushing his redemptive plan. And the whole end of all this is that you were saved for glory. He predestined you, he calls you, he justified you in Christ to glorify you, to make you like Christ. It's all leading to that end. You were saved for glory, to be a child of God who is holy like God, your Father is holy. It's all going to that, to be a Christian and never to grow in your love of God and to grow in your holiness and your obedience to God's word is one who's not a Christian because a Christian should be one by the invisible hand of God pushed towards conforming to the image of Christ. We can't live as the world does because we are children of the holy God. Sin, is, this is a, a quote from John Piper, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. We sin because it holds, up, holds out some promise of happiness. That promise enslaves us until we believe that God promises to be for us in Jesus, stands over against what sin promises to be for us without him. 
When we realize that sin does not produce the happiness that we want, but that God, through Christ, is the one who gives us what we want, and, and through God's promises, we become the person that we want to be. Satisfied in our holiness, we were saved for holiness, predestined, called, justified to glory. This is the, our, the purpose of our salvation in Christ is to be glorified, to be holy, to be like Christ. The second point is God's will for sinners. So this is the end. This is the, this is the end result, is to conform to the image of Christ, to reflect Christ. That is the definition of glory, is that we will reflect Christ fully. How is God doing this? Verse 28 of Romans And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So all things work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The identity of those who are under no condemnation, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who await with groaning their adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of their body. These are the ones that God works all things together for good. So it's not, this is a passage to help you think, well, for those who love God... Think, therefore, all these things. It's not this work-based explanation. It's identifying those who have, are under no condemnation, who are in Christ. These are the ones who all things in their life work out, work together for good. So God's governing power to employ all things to accomplish his will in you. So what is good? So I think this is in a passage that you have to define what good is to be able to understand how God employs all things for your good. It's not wealth. It's not the American dream. That's not the good. It's not status. It's not power. It's not comfort. This passage doesn't say, God works all things together for my comfort, or for my wealth, or for my power, or my status. The definition of good goes back to the passage in verse 29, to the conformity to the image of Christ. That is the good. Things that happen in your life so that you will be conformed into the image of Christ. God employs all things to conform you to Christ. This is his will for your life. Have you ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? This is God's will for your life, to be conformed into the image of his son. Amen. That, is your, that is his will for your life. You don't go, well, what is God's will for my life? What is his will for my life? That is his will for your life. So pain, suffering, failure, loss, successes, everything that happens to you has a purpose to conform you into Christ. If you trust God, See, if you do not trust God, if you don't put your faith in God, you don't put your, your faith in God's promises, as Piper was saying, and you put your faith in sin, it will not produce good in you. All things that, got, got, that are employed in your life doesn't produce good if you do not trust and put your faith in God. Faith that everything in your life is the means by which God renews you and makes you into a new creation Reflecting more and more the fruits of the Spirit, God's will for your life, revealed will, is to be conformed into the image of Christ. That's God's will for your life. So, God's purpose, this is number three, God's purpose for events in your life. God employs all things. Every event in your life is used for good. And that good, again, is to be conformed into the image of Christ. God has predestined you to be like Christ. Christ. 
He has destined you to be like Christ. Therefore, he uses events in your life to produce that end. This is his will for you. So situations, circumstances, relationships are all used to make you into Christ. Everything that happened in your life is to conform you into the image of Christ. Bad things, good things, all things happen so that you will be conformed into the image of Christ. Romans 4.17 uh, God calls things into existence, the things that do not exist. God calls into existence. He predestines. He's the one that calls you to be like Christ. God is transforming sinners into saints. He uses events in your life to conform you into a saint. So we should be encouraged in our suffering. We should be encouraged in our pain because God is using those things to make you like Christ. James chapter 1. I was reading James recently. What a great book, by the way. Let's um, say chapter 1. You know, like when you're like reading something and you're highlighting everything? It's kind of what I was doing when I was reading James chapter 1 recently. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That, catch this, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is the point of your suffering, your pain. Don't run away from pain. Don't try to escape pain. God uses those things to make you like Christ, to perfect you, to complete you, to give you steadfastness. Your pain belongs to God to make you into a person he desires for you to be. He uses all the events of your life to make you the person that reflects Christ. The last point is this. Let's go to verse 26 and 27. God's means in your longing for glory. God's means in your longing for glory. So he kind of goes and talks about prayer here. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit's inter inter Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not, we do not know what to pray. Uh, human weakness, our hearts are cold. Like, I mean, what Paul is saying here is, is that all of us have hearts that are cold to God. Our thoughts constantly wonder. You think about the, the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, that guy, Christ tells them to pray for him, and what do they do? They fall asleep. Right? It's kind of a funny little thing. I think they keep on falling asleep. But that really is a great story or illustration of prayer, right? That we constantly have cold hearts to prayer. That we constantly wonder in our thoughts. I was trying to pray this morning, and not feeling well. My mind was continuing to wonder. I had a hard time thinking about anything. I kept on saying the same words over and over and over again because I couldn't think of anything to say to God. We're selfish in our prayers as well, right? We pray for things that aren't good for us. We pray that God would give us things that we do not need. We're unable to pray according to God's will. We're ignorant of God's will in our life. We don't know what to pray for. We, the number one thing that people pray for is to be taken out of an unwanted situation or to be given a desired result. We don't pray according to God's will. We don't pray that God would conform us into the image of Christ. If that is his will for us, if that's why he saved us, then why do we not pray for that? 
What does God want from me? When we think about prayer, what do we ask for? What should we be praying God for? What are we groaning? What are we longing that God would do in our lives? As children who struggle to communicate, like little, little children, they can't communicate well. They can't communicate clearly. That is a great example of prayer that we groan and we cry and we scream and we don't really say anything worthwhile. We groan not knowing what to ask for and because we don't think and our hearts don't tell us that we should be praying, that we be conformed in the image of Christ. The Spirit that intercedes in our prayers, it knows the will of God. God knows the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit knows what to pray for. He knows God's will for your life. He knows what events will conform you into Christ. So in our groaning, in our longing, in our inability to be able to say anything worthwhile or to articulate anything to God in our prayers, the Spirit helps us in that groaning. It helps us in that longing. So when we pray, and we don't pray for, for God's will that be accomplished in our life, the Spirit articulates proper prayer to God in our behalf. The Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to the will of God. And our longing, He provides content. He translates and conforms our prayers to the will of God so that God then answers and conforms us into the image of Christ in our life. Therefore, uses events, employs all things for your good according to His will so that you will be conformed to the image of Christ. He removes all boasting. He redefines human will and needs so that God hears our prayers and answers them for our sake. God affirms the prayers of the Spirit, which are articulated to God and are conformity to the image of Christ. We, we struggle to pray the things we should pray. And thankfully, the Spirit helps us in that activity. It helps us in our prayers. It is God's means in our longing for glory. Because Deep down, as believers, what we truly want, what we truly desire is to reflect Christ. That's why we were saved. That's why we were predestined. That's what God foreknew us, is to save us in Christ to be like Christ. And the Spirit prays for us on our behalf so that God would accomplish that in our lives. Because, to be honest, we do not pray the way that we should pray. We do not pray that God would conform us into the image of We just pray for things. We pray for materialism. We pray that, that God would give us things or get us out of certain situations. But that's not God's will for your life. God's will for your life is not to give you the best job or to give you the best house or, to, or, or maybe give you the best marriage. His desire for you is to be conformed in the image of Christ. I want to read a quote here at the end. Okay, R.C. Ryle, who have you read Ryle before in his book on holiness? But he writes this, God continually holding our inducements to man to listen to him, obey him, and serve him. He has shown his perfect knowledge of human nature by spreading over the book a perfect wealth of promises, suitable to every kind of experience and every condition of life. Their name is legion. Their subject is almost exhaustible. There is hardly a step in man's life, from childhood to old age, hardly any position which man can be placed, from which the Bible has not held out encouragement to everyone who desires to do right in sight of God. There are shadows and wills in God's treasury for every condition, by God's infinite mercy and compassion, by His readiness to receive all who repent and believe, by His willingness to forgive, pardon, and absolve the chief of sinners, by His power to change hearts and alter our corrupt nature, 
about the encouragements to pray and hear the gospel and to draw near to the throne of grace, about strength for duty, comfort in trouble, guidance in perplexity, help in sickness, consultation in death, support under bereavement, happiness beyond the grave, reward and glory. But all these things, there is an abundant supply of promises in the word. No one can form an idea of his abundance unless he carefully searches the scriptures, keeping the subject steadily in view. If anyone doubts it, I can only say, come and see. The Bible is full of promises of God. And we trust and put our faith in those promises, knowing that those promises will lead us to be conformed into the image of Christ. That is the great promise. And so we, we trust and we believe. We read the scriptures. We believe the scriptures. We trust the words of scripture as truth. And it leads us to conformity to the image of Christ. Because that is the reason why you were saved. You were saved for glory. Not just that your sins would be forgiven. Not that you would just not go to hell. That you would be a part of a church. You were saved to reflect Christ. And as a church... I always like to end with the church. I always like to end with the people of God. The church, we're your cheerleaders. We're your coaches. We're your teammates in your journey to glory. The reason why we come here, the reason why we encourage each other throughout the week is because we need each other to remind us of the future glory, that all of this, everything about our lives is about future glory. It's not about the here and now. It's about what's to come, and we will be conformed into the image of Christ, and we will actually reflect Christ And that's what this is all about. The reason why we come to church, the reason why we love one another and pray for one another, because we need to pray that we would be conformed into the image of Christ. We challenge, we encourage to hold on to the promises of God, that we wouldn't ignore or forget or neglect the promises of God, because the promises of God promise future glory. That we are not the people today that we we will be in the future. That if you struggle with anger, if you struggle with lust, if you struggle with all different other types of sin, that will not be your future. Because you will reflect Christ. And so what Christ reflected when he lived on earth, you will reflect those characteristics and that nature. That is the future glory that is promised to us. That's why you were saved. To reflect Christ. So that's how we should pray for one another. That's how we should encourage one another. We should challenge one another. That that is our, our future glory. And give us that perspective and that thinking. And it would spur us to holiness. That we would obey the scriptures and live a life of holiness. Because that's what our future faith is. So let's pray. So Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you provided enough voice for me to get through this, Lord. And Lord, I pray to you and thank you for your word. Lord, your will for our lives is to be conformed into the image of your Son, to reflect Christ. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, that they would reflect Christ, that they would reflect the nature of Christ, that you would remind them of that promise, Lord, each and every day, they would wake up every morning and go to bed every night reminded, Lord, of the promises of God that you are going to conform them into the image of Christ. What you began, Lord, you will bring to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. You will do this. In our struggles, in our frustrations, Lord, in those times when we feel so far away from you, may you remind us, Lord, what our future glory is. 
that you have saved us, you've predestined us, Lord, you have justified us, you've called us to glory. That's why we are saved. That's why we're Christians. We are Christians because we are going to reflect a future glory, that we will reflect Christ. Christ is the first fruits of many brothers and sisters. He is the first fruits, and we will follow the Lord to reflect that same glory, that same nature, that same character, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who are going through suffering, if they're going through pain, or give them that perspective. May they rejoice in their suffering, Lord, knowing that their suffering will lead to steadfastness, and their steadfastness, Lord, will lead to perfection and completion in you. If there's anyone here who's not a follower of Christ, Lord, I pray that you would screw them, Lord, to believe and trust in you. Being a Christian is not living in a subculture. It's not uh, having a certain, wearing a certain clothing or, or drinking certain beverages, Lord. Being a Christian is those who hope in a future glory and expect that future glory. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.